Welcome to the Commerce Talks podcast, episode number 52. Today my guest is Philip Jackson. He is Chief Commerce Officer at RightPoint and he is building a very exciting startup called Future Commerce with a very interesting content around the commerce industry and um, a very cool podcast, um, by the way. He is part of the e-commerce circus now for over 20 years. Um, he uh, was and is a developer. He was covering the whole Magento development um, um, from the inside. Uh, he has very popular videos on the Magento technologies on uh, YouTube. That's what we are also talking about in the podcast. And um, today we are trying to yeah, recap and digest uh, the Magento time. We try to understand if the same thing is happening now with um, Shopify, how the market has changed, how B2B um, has changed, what the difference is between the European ecosystem and the US ecosystem. So um, for all the people in the commerce industry, vendor-wise or technology partner-wise, um, that's definitely um, a must here. So enjoy episode number 52. Philip, welcome to the Commerce Talks show, episode number 50-something, I think. Um, it is yours and experience podcast host. Uh, I guess you um, also sometimes forget which episode number you're recording. <laughs> um, today, we are talking uh, about commerce, uh, as it is actually the main topic topic in, in Commerce Talks. Uh, but with your background and experience, I think that's going to be a very entertaining episode. Please tell our audience who you are and who you're working for. Yeah, thanks. Uh, and so good to be here, Alexander. Wait, so, uh, wow, uh, it's going to be a long story. Uh, the the windup is is uh, uh, really just sort of which part of the story is applicable to this audience. Uh, so by day, uh, you know, my mild mannered uh, Clark Kent personality to my Superman uh, would be that I am the chief commerce officer at a consulting strategy firm called Right Point. Uh, based out of Chicago. Um, I, I come to RightPoint via acquisition. I spent uh, eight years uh, going on nine at a company called Something Digital, which was a Magento and Shopify agency, uh, where I, I ran our strategy ops uh, practice lead and then, uh, yeah, and into the executive team. And I have a background uh, of 12 some years in uh, the Magento ecosystem before that uh you know as a developer and before that i i used to lead dev teams to build custom e-commerce platforms from scratch and that was sort of where i started my career uh from in the the early 2000s into about uh, 2008 when i discovered that uh, uh well-known monolithic e-commerce e platform that we all uh know and love uh with various degrees of love um And then by night, uh, I have a startup. Uh, I, I founded a media business a few years ago with uh, my co-founder, Brian Lang. Uh, one of the things that we started in that media business was a podcast called Future Commerce. And uh, Future Commerce has taken off. We have uh, about 25,000 folks who pay attention to our content and uh, uh, across the ecosystem. And, you know, we don't just talk about one flavor of e-commerce you know we, we talk about how uh, digital is changing everything in retail b2b uh and and beyond and uh we think that there's a a real need for a modern uh trade uh publication because a lot of the retail trade publications are, are pretty stodgy and uh and old and crufty and uh, we have a voice and we we use great design to communicate uh some really original ideas and thoughts and yeah uh, and we put out content five days a week across a couple podcasts and uh and a bunch of newsletters and essays uh and a bunch of reports too with the custom research component that we developed over the last couple of years so that's yeah that's who i am 
Okay, then let's maybe compare notes on uh, on the on our common history in uh, e-commerce. Did you know that uh, Magento was the reason why Spryker was founded? I I do. Yeah. <laughs> I do know exactly. Yeah. Uh, I I do. Um, I, I take it. You know, we we like to say. Uh, you know, this ecosystem, especially around open source and e-commerce, probably wouldn't have existed without the complexity uh, or, or the 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 history of Magento. But it has also uh, created a reason for so many other things to exist in the world to try to solve problems differently. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think Magento was like a a, a, a great a, a great influencer in the whole for the whole ecosystem. So my first touch point with Magento was when I joined the Otto Group in 2005, and um, Otto was um, was then running on Intershop on a very very uh, um, complex Intershop setup with already hundreds of millions of revenue. And then uh, in the new media department, which was in mail order companies and brick and mortar companies, you know, all these e-commerce um, uh, people were called like new media. Uh, um, they uh, um, uh, we had some experience playing experiments playing around with um, uh, with uh, Magento and with Magento. I think that was like the first kind of very almost enterprise ready um, uh, e-commerce solution, which you just could extract on a PHP server. So it was super easy to, um, to, mm-hmm. um, to, to get a first demo shop running. And then we showed this to our um, tech guys um, in, in, the, in the auto basement and say, okay, why, why can't we do this with our InterShop installation? Then, and I think that's how it all started. You know? And then uh, um, only like two years later, Zalando started um, based on a Magento uh, version first, and then um, they migrated to a Java uh, version, but it's it showed that it was a it was a it was a huge uh, a huge starting point for for a lot of uh, a lot of companies. And um, actually, that was also the time when uh, Magento and the Magento community was very active in the um, Barcamp uh, mm. um, community, which was between 2008 and 2012 a big thing yeah. in the in the German market. And I think it was also big in the uh, in the yes now now it kind of died, but uh, um, it was. It was big then, and and you have been around uh, in, in this ecosystem um, the whole the whole way. When Boris and I um, compare notes on Magento and look back, and obviously we draw some learnings from Magento time. It is um, there was a lot of hate and um, and shitstorm about Magento from people that didn't understand the system correctly, that expected kind of. Yeah, WordPress easy plug and play functionality out of a commerce system that that. It's never, there was never, Magento was never designed for, uh, um, and, uh, and therefore, um, cre- uh, and therefore created opportunities for other uh, vendors. So when you are looking to the whole Magento development from a U.S. perspective, were there, were there some important um, points along the way, milestones where we'd say, okay, um, here it really made an impact. This year was really um, interesting. If ABC would have happened in 2009, if I don't know, mm. Walmart would have started its e-commerce enterprise on Magento, everything uh, would have turned out um, different. Oh, I, uh, so I I play this game a lot. I think about this a lot. Uh, what if something had happened? And I, I think there are... Uh, I have this concept that I've written quite a bit about over at Future Commerce uh, called sacrificial lambs. And uh, you've seen this in the world in many forms. Uh, uh, Businesses who never really uh, live long enough to inherit the world that they created. Uh, There's there's a great example um, 
uh, Napster is probably the greatest example of creating a consumer expectation around digital delivery of music. Uh, but their business model didn't lend them to uh, capitalize on the expectation that they created in the marketplace. Who capitalized on it? Well, uh, if you look a little forward in time from you know that that timeline from 2000, 2001, uh, it, it was very soon after that Apple acquired a license for Amazon's one click that made the iTunes store viable and buying digital music uh, and having an ecosystem around it uh, was for many people the very first purchase they ever made online. Like one click music purchases from Apple was a, an entrance to e-commerce as we know it. Napster exists today in theory. Uh, it still has a website, like it has a brand, but no reasonable person is using Napster. Um, for me, and I'll get myself in trouble saying this because we still deliver Magento at scale for enterprise, and it is not the same platform today that it was 12 years ago. Uh, I think it is still very viable in certain uh, in certain deployments, and there will always be a market uh, for deployed software, uh, especially in highly regulated industries and very complex industries and specifically around open source. So I just making sure I cover all my bases and not get myself in trouble. But, um, if Magento had come out in 2010 and not 2008, if Magento had come out in 2010 or 11, a lot of the architecture decisions that made Magento a difficult and frustrating platform to work with and created a, a very, very steep learning curve would have been rethought. Good example would be EAV architecture. Would not have been a an, an architecture that would have been uh, adopted and then had to have been uh, uh, proliferated for over a decade in the, in the core of the platform because document storage databases um, became much more prevalent in the following years. You would you would probably also not have built it on a pure LAMP stack with the idea that the world runs on LAMP. You might have adopted Ruby. You would have had a larger, more fanatic community around, you know, a, a Cassandra or a Mongo-based uh, uh, part of the catalog instead of being pure LAMP and solving everything in a LAMP environment. And I think part of the architecture decisions are the things that long-term have created hurdles to adoption uh, because the world has just not been long for... Uh, and, and by the way, Magento has had incredible commercial success. I mean, they had a, a, multiple exits over time, uh, uh, you know, uh, over and over again. So some, you know, a lot of commercial success around the software itself and the community that came around it. So in no way am I... Could it have been Shopify scale, though? Well, Shopify basically is the Magento story just happening further down the timeline. Um, and it also happened pre-cloud, right? So cloud, uh, I was developing Magento on the cloud. One of my very first cloud deployments ever was a, a Magento uh, uh, deployment on AWS circa 2000, late 2009 or, or early 2010. Um, this is before, you know, there were web uh, uh uh, con consoles for EC2. It was all API only on the command line. So this is, you know, these things have been around for a while. They were contemporaneous, but they would have been, it happened on the cusp of a fundamental change in the way that we write software, the way that we deploy software, and 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 the way that the world consumes software. If it had happened two, three years later, I think Magento would be the dominant player in the marketplace and would have solved a lot of the things that uh, were challenging. Also, so I've only talked about back-end architecture and infrastructure, 
the front end stack is a nightmare for new developers. And one of the major challenges, and they had a fork in the road that I was a part of a steering committee um, uh, with eBay and then uh, uh, Magento on its own under Premiera Partners, uh, which was a private equity firm that had acquired it away from eBay Enterprise uh, somewhere out of 2012 or 13. Um, part of that um, uh, conversation was if we're going to, how are we going to deliver a front end uh, developer uh DevRel uh, experience that makes it a joy to work in. And there was this fundamental argument of, do we use an open source stack that is common, like um, Bootstrap, that everybody can buy into? Do we use, uh, or do we create something of our own that is potentially, uh, has its own uh, paradigm that is specific to commerce? Uh, and, you know, the powers that be saw a lot more, uh, uh, you know, looking back now, and I'm giving an oral history of something that I did not you know that i'm i'm <laughs> i am narrating someone else's history but uh i think it's pretty clear that they chose to create the software of their own accord uh in a front end stack of their own seeing that it would be more valuable as a product to sell later on uh, in a private equity model um for an acquirer to say that we have some thing that we created that is intellectual property that is common only to Magento itself and creates an artificial barrier to have certifications around and for them to own the uh, the entire developer experience is saying that this is like a piece of commercial software that you can certify people in. So long story short, a lot of decisions were made over time and during certain eras that I think just were too early. And had they been done later... Um, we would have rethought the way that we're uh, tackling certain challenges. And then lastly, you know, um, because I have the definitive video on explaining what EAV uh, is in the marketplace on YouTube, uh, it has all of, I don't know, probably 2,000 views because nobody cares. But um, <laughs> uh, it is often cited as like the definitive explanation of how how to think about it. I will put a link in the show notes. Please, yeah. Uh, uh, it's a very boring 30-minute watch. Um, uh, but... But one of the things around entity attribute value and sort of it as a schema is you can't enforce business rules from a schema level. So that creates another challenge of business business complexity. And all of this in service of what? Taking a database offline for a few minutes for you to make a schema update? And it's, it's just a misguided architecture for a challenge that very few people ever have when your site has to go down anyway in the Magento world for hours at a time for you to do offline index updates. So it's it's just layers upon layers upon layers of complexity that were brilliant implementations of requirements from brilliant developers that didn't understand the audience that was consuming it. And none of these people were merchants. None of these people actually had to live and consume the software or develop on the software as a platform. And I think that you know, a few years later, they would have had uh, greater uh, immersion in an emergent ecosystem of e-commerce and more people to in inform them about the way that their software was being created. I have a whole other rant about something else that I'd like to get to, but that is has been the frustration of being so of having my career be so uh, closely tied and my success in my in my career being so closely tied to the success of Magento for many years. And I think one reason some of the architectural um, decisions have been made way before 2008, it's, it started kind of an agency solution. Like uh, Joachim cool. and Roy like, did customer projects with it and that actually the most e-commerce software solutions um, uh, were born that way. It was That's like right. customer yeah. projects and then we had, they had like 
10 similar customer projects and then you try to do the software out of it. I think it started in 2003, 2004. Uh, um, and, and therefore it's like, it's all, and it, it, it's one of the reasons and one of the ways how we explain why we are different. It's like when we started in 2014, 15, the world was very different. So, and we could start it yeah. uh, and we, we, um, we had the chance. And I think that was very unique uh, in, in, in the commerce industry for vendors we we could afford to start without the first twenty customers that would uh, start like a an enter, um, an enterprise project with us as a service project. So we could uh, we could build it on a um, on a on a whiteboard, which uh, which which was not the case in the Magento environment. But what is uh, where I see similarities between Magento and um, Shopify, and you have experience like in both worlds is. Um, in uh, 2008, 2009, every commerce problem that was around in B2B, in B2C, um, one product a day, business models, marketplace models. So everything was tried to solve with Magento. And 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 I, I see the tendency yeah. today that because Shopify is so popular, as you said, it's kind of the, it's it's, it's our day's Magento kind, mm-hmm. kind, kind of. Yeah, it's the now, dominant. Now, it's yeah, the dominant. And right. now people try to solve everything with Shopify, even complex true. business a business model that, that leads to some uh, 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 some frustration. And um, there's like they are way better in community management. So uh, um, you have to we have to, you have to give Shopify um, that. But obviously, for in some enterprise projects, you see unhappy developers or unhappy, unhappy project managers. So would you share this view, or do you think it's kind of different? What's happening now? Maybe. Um, I... I have a, a more abstracted idea that uh, people and therefore businesses, because businesses aren't people, although we like to in the United States refer to corporations as you know as beings, um, <laughs> we, uh, businesses and and uh, thrive in boundaries, and they thrive in boundaries because people thrive in boundaries. I believe. Uh, I believe in when when boundaries are are set, uh, we we exercise our brilliance to solve problems, even given a boundary. And one ar- arbitrary boundary uh, of many that Shopify laid out in its ecosystem was: where are the points of greatest complexity? Checkout's one of them, right? Checkout is an incredible point of complexity for most merchants. You're solving an identity problem, right? Um, first and foremost, uh, uh, so there's authentication there. Uh, you're solving payments, you're solving logistics. Uh, all of these things sort of converge there. And it's also the area of greatest investment and highest complexity uh, in any e-commerce platform I have ever worked on, including customer software that I built for you know a decade before finding Magento. And uh, checkout is just fundamentally tough to, to solve for. Um, and every customer, if given the flexibility to be able to do it, will do something to change their checkout. They will. So putting an arbitrary boundary around an area that is incredibly complex to solve it, uh, uh, to to not allow uh, brands to to make changes to it, has actually been the thing, it's counterintuitive, has been the thing that's caused the greatest success for Shopify is to allow businesses to only focus on the things that they can change. And when you give them less choice in the platform, and and this is not an argument away from open source, by the way, but it it sounds like it is. Uh, If you cannot spend your your valuable uh, mental energy and and development effort 
on an area in one area and you can only focus it in another area, which is much further up the funnel, maybe you start to actually think about the things that cause you to have to be more fundamentally uh, better at being a business and not being good at being developers. And that's where I think there's been this real dividing line is that uh, a decade ago, you know, if you wanted to be in e-commerce, you had to be able to solve all of these really tough challenges. You had to run a dev team. You had to understand, you know, Scrum and Agile. You had to understand infrastructure and you had to, or you had to have, you know, deep pockets to afford partners that can do all of those things for you. That's no longer the case. And I think the world is better for having more merchants focus on the things that they're really good at, which is making great products that the world wants and selling it to them. Um, now B2B has its own challenges and we can touch on that. Uh, but I, I think really just this arbitrary boundary that was, was put into place. The other one being limited customization outside of apps. And that created a more democratized marketplace in Shopify for, for more people to share in the market dynamics and the network effects of, of, uh, uh, sharing a distribution of wealth in the value chain of creating an e-commerce experience. But long story short, the more that e-commerce grows, right, Alexander, like we're, we're in an era right now where every single interaction is being influenced by digital. The greater that that grows, the more that we're seeing that this one experience and this one strategy is not fit for everybody and it never will be. That's like only one e-commerce platform is no n- no more suitable than only one store to shop on ever. There are stores other than Amazon and I think the world is playing like starting to show that uh that we want more choice and greater choice of where to shop. We have that in the real world, we we have it in in digital at a different scale. So long story here is as e-commerce grows our need for nuance in solving problems in very specific ways and and preferences around stack and deployments uh, and proficiency in solving certain kinds of problems, specifically, you know, not just B2B, which is this big like nebulous thing that, you know, like there's there's complexity in manufacturing, there's complexity in automotive, there's com- there's different types of challenges to solve for. The pie grows bigger for everybody. And that means that the slices of the pie grow bigger over time too. And there's more opportunity now than there has ever been before for challenger platforms to come in in, into the the marketplace and to provide vertical industry-specific solutions. One being, I see more opportunity right now uh, for verticalized and category-specific e-commerce platforms than have ever existed before. Furniture is a really good example of that. There's, uh, I'm aware of at least one SaaS e-commerce platform called Commerce Bear, um, which just uh, uh, raised a, a pre-seed round. Um, they are specifically trying to create an e-commerce platform just for furniture. Uh, why? Well, because furniture has its own challenges around logistics and supply chain. It has its own challenges um, where they don't just sell on Amazon. Like there's vertical marketplaces for consumers just for furniture. Wayfair is one. Uh, uh, there's resale uh, for furniture and owning your resale experience. Uh, so there's, there's a, and then there's, you know, the logistics and shipping of furniture has its own challenges as well. So I think as digital becomes more pervasive, 
the the verticalization of e-commerce will become much more prevalent and the need for more platforms that solve challenges and sol solve these problems differently and have more opinions about how you solve those problems will be much more will be much greater as well so i think everybody can win um is the long is what i'm trying to say in a very long-winded way Let's hope that it, that it's true. So I'm a little bit careful with the argument. Um, there's just there's more than Amazon because this argument is used usually by weak retailers. In when we ask them, okay, what's your USP? But yeah, yes, more than Amazon, you can't shop everything on Amazon. So, but but I am yeah. in, in your but context, should, is right? Yeah. Amazon is also your frenemy, right? Like yeah. you, there's, it is also probably the greatest opportunity of channel for you know long term customer relationship. Um, Uh, and and the channel of least resistance for most customers too. So uh, not not knocking or discounting it in any way. Yeah. So so I've I've recorded. Um, uh, it was not here in the podcast. It was on Spike on Air, which is another format uh, we are we are doing. There was um, Bob Burke, um, the former CEO of ATG, and I discussed with Bob Burke. Okay, what kind of mm -hmm. um, what kind of requirements uh, did you remember from your time as an um, ATG CEO, and how how did those requirements change over time? And I, I want to hear your like your your uh, your view on that. And he said, uh, you know, in 2002, it was a lot of um, questions like uh, which was like the before Magento uh, time. Yep. So yep. it was like the early days of um, SAP Hybris or Hybris back then, and Intershop yep. and Uh, I think IBM WebSphere and ATG were like dominant solutions back then. And sure. uh, the questions from customers were around, can this, uh, can this uh, uh, solution support a certain number of uh, users at a peak time? Um, is, is, uh, and uh, can, it, can, it, can I use it for personalization and can it manage and deploy promotions? And, and a couple of years later, uh, the question changed into, um, uh, what are these SEO capabilities? You know, this kind of Google hype started like yep. 2003, yep. 2004. And is it able to adapt um, social commerce? And is it able to adapt multiple uh, multiple front? And I think that was even the time when uh, Wayfair was, I think, what was Wayfair? Was it Hayneedle or CSN stores before it was Wayfair? Mm -hmm. So, uh, but they run on like, I don't know, 300 300 different like front ends, you know, yes. uh, the yeah. uh, uh, yep. www.couch.org and uh, www.furnitureforkitchen.net, uh, all this stuff. So um, do you see, uh, and this was kind of, it was all all questions around like online shops. It was like the, the desktop version was still like the main thing. Do you mm -hmm. see them? And as you said, you see potential for vertical solutions um, or for specific specific niches of industries do you see that this requirements have changed over time because you're working if i understand your job correctly you're you're involved pretty early in the decision making process right and mm -hmm. customers are telling you so what are their 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 wishes and requirements yeah uh well that's that's it can be <laughs> that itself is its own uh its own podcast is is uh uh there's two sides of that job which is uh a lot of a lot like more than you would believe a lot of uh businesses follow path of least resistance around e-commerce platform architecture selection so part of that especially in enterprise it's I already have a solution that went through vendor procurement and that took me 18 months. So this idea of let me find the best 
solution is uh, will never happen. Uh, the best solution for me is the one that doesn't require me to have to you know fight vendor procurement for a year. Um, so they find an e-commerce platform and they're going to you know st- uh, stamp and repeat it in their organization. And they what they're really trying to figure out is what's the most flexible one that'll get me a decade uh, uh, down the road. And that's that's just the truth. Um, so in that case, like, you know, you see a lot of legacy deployments of a lot of legacy software and you look at big CPG companies, they have 90, 95 brands in, in, in as, you know, big holding company and they all have their own strategies. They all have their own teams. They're not cross-functional. There's no one person anywhere in the organization, even if their title is innovation officer, like no one has a, 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 <laughs> no one and and uh, it sounds very critical but it's just the truth no one has a a big overarching strategy or a vision of what they're trying to accomplish everybody is just trying to uh uh you know fulfill a you know check some items off of a list of a roadmap of things of oh oh the next 4 years we're going to do direct to consumer so that's where we need <laughs> to be invested and that's but that's how it actually works what would be nice is is having a is is really thinking about where your challenges a few years from now will be, and let's think about how we build a business for that. And I, I, it's interesting because even if we let's look backwards a little bit, and I'll be self critical, I never would have expected that a common challenge between B two C and B two B a few uh, going back, you know, let's say now two thousand fifteen or sixteen. Uh, I don't think anybody would have been talking about the rising cost of acquisition for a customer and and mm. uh, management of uh, e-commerce, um, because there are so many. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I feel like the old guy in these conversations, but um, we are becoming the old guys in it's these true, conversations. Actually, you're right. Yeah, uh, ten years ago. Uh, it, there was this uh, talk about artificial barriers. The barrier to entry for e-commerce was. Do you have hundreds of thousands of dollars to spend on uh, team infrastructure architecture? And do you have the time investment? Like, will you put in the work needed to stand up a site? And if you do, there's some arbitrage around paid search uh, and organic SEO that was giving you 10x multiples on your return on investment. And so if you and I remember it very clearly uh, watching that era of e-commerce in the in 2008, 2009, 2010 of seeing 9 and 10x return on investment. And you would spend a dollar and you'd get 10 back. That's what Google ads used to be. That's what, uh, uh, but as, as more businesses have come online, uh, that's eroded over time. The cost of entry has also come down over time because that is the law of, of platform ecosystems. Uh, the cloud made that infinitely easier uh, and cloud-based e-commerce platforms made that easier easier still you can it used to took take six months to do anything material now it takes six minutes to, to launch a Shopify store uh, you don't even have to go through supply chain and customs to figure out how to build something uh, and bring it to the United States anymore you can go on on uh, Alibaba and and, uh, and you know ha- buy a lot of things and have it shipped direct from uh, you know Shenzhen and that's the world that we live in has done a lot of arbitrage around removing the barrier to entry to be online so what what happens then is 
people are investing any less in their e-commerce. It's just moved the lump further down the snake, right? We it used to be that the 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 barrier to entry was uh, spending on infrastructure and just getting online. Now the barrier to entry is you're online. How are you going to acquire customers? That doesn't come for free, and uh, that's a rising cost. That uh, it happens at the same time as creating a customer experience in both B two B and B two C is more expensive now than ever before because it requires an ecosystem of third party you know uh, capabilities. Uh, to have a best-in-class customer experience, you have to have uh, uh, email. On the B2C side, you have to have retention and lifecycle marketing. Um, you probably have loyalty somewhere in there. Uh, you, you probably have uh, uh, you know some sort of rate calculation or carrier calculation. You have some subscription management. All of these things are erosive to margins because they all take a fraction of your... There's no fixed costs anymore. They're all erosive to margins, so they, they scale linearly with your business, which is not a great way, by the way, to build business. You, you want to get the unfair scale advantage. Um, and uh, and with that comes the repricing of the way cloud software is consumed is it's no longer based on like terabytes, it's based on GMV. Uh, so that also unfairly scales with you. So um, uh, long story short, uh, for B2C, it's, it's, it's a challenge. B2B is, has been undergoing a, a in evolution itself. Uh, B2B has more B2C style marketing than ever. There's account-based marketing. Uh, there's platforms that uh, run all that lifecycle marketing as well. There's uh, service desk and, um, and uh, uh, other tools that you know give a total view of the customer to uh, sales reps and uh, sales experiences. Uh, there's employee experiences that you have to invest in. There's uh, uh, just so much complexity around integrations um, that that make all of that also very expensive. And guess what? Uh, a middleware software also is being uh, priced based on GMV that's running through the platform these days. So. Uh, Long the, the long story short, I've said that so many times today. I, I'm very long winded, um, but the it's never been more expensive to be in e-commerce. Even though the the market's never been bigger, uh, it used to be that we said we're removing the middleman in e-commerce, and that's why e-commerce was the, the great value prop. Was that we don't need a physical brick and mortar store. We don't need so many employees to run it. Uh, we we don't even need an air conditioned space. We could put product in a warehouse and ship it direct to your door. It's the cheapest thing possible. It removes all of the middlemen between a brand and the customer. It's no longer the case. In fact, it, now there's more middlemen than there's ever been. It's true. So, uh, but I also say usually to the customers uh, um, that are coming to us, like with business cases, and we are rather working with B two B customers, especially mm -hmm. on marketplace business cases. And when we describe the market, and it all sounds very complex. What I tend to say is that tomorrow it's going to be even more complex. There's like more <laughs> competition. It's the salary, the 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 average level of salary will be increased because there's more demand for digital uh, um, experts. So it seems to be super complicated today. It's even more complicated tomorrow, though there's mm -hmm. no and as, as there is actually no choice anymore to stay away from e-commerce, though that uh, uh, which was different like uh, 20 years ago. You could say, okay, I don't want to afford an online shop, so I, I go with my brick and mortar business or with my mail order business or whatever. So it's a very different um, entry um, situation. Um, also, most companies, um, especially the ones that are um, starting uh, starting in e-commerce uh, right now, they, they don't have the infrastructure they don't have the org chart they don't have they they don't even know 
what are what is a job description for a product manager? What is a product manager in e-commerce actually right. when you're coming from an event manufacturing company where product manager is something essentially very different. So, mm -hmm. uh, um, so I, I I agree. It's um, I think um, uh, getting the dollar back becomes more complicated, especially in B2C. I don't agree in, in B2B right now. It's actually the time where you can spend a dollar and get $10 back easily if you do it right. Mm. Uh, but um, it's going to be harder tomorrow. If you have the choice to stay away from e-commerce, if you have like a strategy for the next 50 years um, where your business um, can survive without a digital infrastructure, fine, do it. But I haven't met a company yet <laughs> that could answer this, this, uh, this question. And which, which leads me to my final question about like uh, your e-commerce speech. And I'd like to spend a couple of minutes on future um, commerce. Yeah. Um, You've been in this space now for so long, uh, and you've been uh, uh, you've been also around when this whole transformation thing started about ten years ago. Transform your company or die, blah blah blah. Right. Have you seen one success case where a company with an analog DNA, brick and mortar company, uh, um, a mail order company, whatever, succeeded in digital and was able to get market share back from pure play companies? Hmm. You're gonna to have to edit the long pause. I, uh, I'm gonna to have to think through that a bit. Um, yeah, and it's, uh, just give you like one example. So um, there, are, we have we see some companies in Germany, Otto, for example, so the company I work for, or Douglas, right. that were able to transform a little bit. Uh, uh, they, um, but um, but they only were able to transform part of their brick and mortar revenue and digital revenue. They never came to a growth rate like an Amazon or eBay in the uh, success mm. days of eBay or Azores or Zappos or, um, um, or whatever. And, and I tend to say uh, in keynote that, you know, it's like, it's like a lottery game. There might be a lottery winner on stage telling you, you know, I tried it hundreds of times. I, I, I always lost. But, you know, one time I, I hit the jackpot and I won. And you can do it too. So it's uh, so that that is my feeling I have when when I have to consult companies with a very very analog background that want to be uh, uh, yeah in a mm. position where they can compete with digital. So that's why I'm so uh, so e eager to find success cases. Uh, it's yeah. so hard actually. There there's a I think that there are things that. Uh, there are probably examples and I'm not astute enough to, uh, to reference one. That's just uh, 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 probably very obvious uh, to most people. Uh, I, I think that there is something to be said about um, being in the game long enough. It's, it's not about um, it's what they say in investing, right? Uh, you said you listen to a lot of uh, uh, finance podcasts and uh, or there, that there's a lot that exists. I listen to enough of them. And one thing you hear a lot is, Uh, don't try to time the market, right? It's it's not about timing the market. It's time in the market. The longer that you're in the market, uh, the the longer that you know uh, strategies like dollar cost averaging uh, work out for you. And uh, I hope that and, that is also true for the Robinhood uh, users. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I hope so too. I, I, uh, meme stocks kind of break that, but um, the the idea here is. Uh, the the businesses that are capable of transformations are the uh, and are the ones who have already evolved and transformed over many many generations already. 
Um, the ones that we talk about the most, uh, the ones that we take the greatest lessons from are the ones who have already exhibited that over their very long lifespan to begin with. Um, and that has taken many uh, forms over many generations. Uh, the one that probably just comes to mind and is, is likely uh, an example I'll be criticized for, but I read Shoe Dog recently, uh, Phil Knight, uh, who was the founder of Nike, uh, who who wrote uh, this this uh, uh, this uh, memoir about, you know, his time in leadership and uh, the transformation of the business. You know, it was a bunch of accountants uh, who started uh, this company. And, uh, you know, they've gone through ebbs and flows of the business. And recently, um, you know, that is not an example of an analog business that has won out in the end. In fact, it's a business that uh, that I think was very slow to transform uh, and to succumb to uh, th- what the new world was uh, 10 years ago. And you could have probably counted Nike as, you know, down and out, um, especially as so many of the the wholesale businesses that uh, powered their 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 bottom line, uh, were eroding their, uh, their business and their brand. Uh, it was a very risky move for them to, to invest in digital the way that they have. And it happened to align at a, a perfect time in the culture where the, you know, where, uh, there was a digital, um, native consumer who was ready to spend more on uh, luxury apparel goods that just happened to line up at the right point in time. Again, it's time in the market. They just had to survive long enough for them to be, re- uh, uh, relevant again. Um, I don't think that, the story is that dissimilar for uh, legacy businesses uh, who have uh, lived through, um, you know, many, many changes in culture and many changes in the way that uh, customers expect to be able to do business with them. Of course, it's at a different scale and it's a consumer business, uh, but there's something to be said about, uh, you know, the the lessons learned over generations. Um, and, uh, you know, what's really interesting to watch, it's not really commerce focused, but uh, it's really interesting to watch how a business like Facebook has adapted over um, many generations and implementations of what it it was. It certainly started as a social network, um, but overcame the mobile, the jump to mobile, um, and then has overcome, you know, is looking to ov- sort of overcome and, and leap out of the, you know, w- the the perils of social networking to try to become something more um, and to, to still be relevant to a culture that actually has become, uh, quite adversarial to the way that disinformation spreads in, uh, online and yet, uh, will likely be relevant in the future. Um, there's a lot of lessons to be taken there and I'm probably not the one to give the 301 on it, but I think it's an interesting insight to say, you know, there's, maybe it's not about an analog business. I just don't have uh, the the example on the tip of my tongue, but I think it's about doing the things that are that are needed to have the fundamentals uh, that allow you to succeed uh, to to survive in the market long enough for for when uh, you find the product market fit for a culture that's ready for you, wh- whatever that might be. Okay, is Best Buy the success case for you? And that uh... it is, but I what's interesting about Best Buy is the. Uh, the the total reinvention of what that business is like from from head to toe um they are effectively a bunch of shopping shops like they are what you know a smaller version of what uh the the shopping mall is um and they have you know beautiful uh very small brand experiences and engagements um activations throughout a store these days, which is very different to the model that they were operating 10 years ago, they had to be imperiled to be able to pull off that sort of evolution. And I think that's one of the, um, 
you know, that's that's sort of one of the the that's sort of the the evolution life cycle of uh, a modern business is that uh, you can only really make those kinds of big swings when you're in a uh, uh, <laughs> when you're in a situation to have to uh, to evolve or die. Um, you know, these days it's also skewing much more toward luxury, which I think is also uh, something that gives you a, a better uh, insight into the way that margins work in a business like that, especially around um, uh, services. Uh, and so uh, more services to, to deliver um, uh, makes you more relevant to more customers, but customers are also willing to spend more uh, on uh, home and kitchen than they are, say, on, you know, a flat screen TV, which has become extremely commoditized. Um so yeah, I think I think there's something to be said. Home automation is another great example of a thing that uh, is a service that goes along with a commoditized product. Um, I, I'm curious what you think about Best Buy uh, and why you brought that up as an example. I brought this up as an example because it it grew like revenue wise, but of, obviously it it lost a lot of market share to Amazon and other uh, consumer electronics um, uh, retailers. And we have our Best Buy in Europe is Media Market. Uh, and uh, a media market has a very tough tough time now to in order to trans uh, transform and they're um, actually the you see it not on the revenue side first when they are losing against like digital you see it on the um, EBITDA side so it's like yeah. they're losing like their earnings first yes. so uh, um, and one of my former bosses I ought to say you know Mr. Graf giving away stuff for free that's easy <laughs> so <laughs> making money out of it that's the hard part that is the hard part uh, which uh, which is part. true which you see a lot of uh, and you see it right now is a lot of um, SPACs uh, uh, yeah. in e-commerce where a lot of companies are going online now all the trash is going online it's uh, yeah it's easy to get to like 3 400 million if you are able to spend 3 400 million right now if you don't need to earn money uh, so that that's the hard part but um uh, would you be willing to like uh, uh, do like a second episode? Because I would like to bring a couple of examples where I would like to hear your your yeah. uh, your view on, and then we could um, follow up on the future commerce um, um, thing because there yeah. there's very interesting um, very interesting blog articles I'd like to talk about uh, with you. But um, um, uh, actually, to wrap this kind of success cases up, the interesting thing right now compared to five years ago is you see now we have a, a couple of failed online businesses so it's not mm -hmm. online versus offline anymore so it's like also online versus online and the from my uh, uh my um my perspective is the only common denominator of success is speed of adaption though so the ones that adapted faster to market changes and customer behavior changes and the ones that are able to do it now those are the ones that can win regardless if it's offline or online Obviously, most of the adaption comes with like technical capabilities and like e-commerce companies or pure plays by definition have more technical capabilities. But uh, uh, um, even a Best Buy or a Lowe's or Home Depot, they can be like the number one marketplace for DIY, which will be a very different marketplace than the Amazon marketplace. Uh, um, therefore, there are chances. Uh, what um, what worries me is uh, that it's so hard to name success cases. But yeah, maybe we can follow this up on uh, yeah. on episode number two. I would be super. I would uh, love to do that. Of you willing I, to do that? I will give you one more line of thought around yeah. uh, the Best Buy story. If uh, prior to the pandemic. Uh, and, and by the way, this is actually common to both Lowe's and Home, Home Depot as well as uh, brick and mortar businesses, uh, massive distribution uh, services businesses that uh, also uh, exist within its own four walls. Like you, 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 you are not just buying a product. In some cases, mm -hmm. you're you're buying a line of services that come along with the product. Yes. I find that to be really interesting. 
they have all uh they all invested prior to the pandemic in more convenient means uh, of getting products to customers. They all invested in home delivery. They all invested in um, curbside pickup. They all invested in uh, self-checkout. And uh, they all invested in uh, buy online, pick up in store. Uh, I think that's something to be said is that prior to the pandemic, that's that's something that was, uh, could it, it, it seemed like, uh, probably a losing bid at uh, an element of convenience or sort of you, you might have said is indexing towards like what consumer actually needs curbside yes. pickup post pandemic. It seems like it's a fundamental for a brick and mortar business to be able to do that. In fact, we see a lot of uh, 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 just in time workforce delivery apps, uh, uh, ride share uh, that have all risen to, you know, fill that demand. Um, so I think there's something to be said, like you said, is anticipating the future changes of, of customer expectations and needs in the business. Um, my outlook on Best Buy is completely different today than it was two years ago. And it's it's almost entirely centered around their foresight in the market to yep. build a capability that no one really knew how how badly we would need it. Um, yeah, let's follow up on this in episode number two. Um, Philip, thank you for your time. It was super entertaining. Uh, uh, um, uh, um, maybe we can do this on a regular basis. Thank you. I would be more than uh, delighted. It would be great. I'd love to do this. Thanks for listening in. Please don't forget to rate this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or SoundCloud, or whatever tool you're uh, using for listening podcasts. That's going to help us to find new listeners. Maybe you can also refer us to a friend. But best thing you can do is uh, listen in next time. Okay.